My name is Michael Cox, and today I'm talking to Professor James Clark from the Green Chemistry Centre of Excellence at the University of York. The centre focuses on the development and implementation of green and sustainable chemistry. At the moment, this is a particularly hot topic as, in the light of issues like climate change, we're becoming increasingly aware of the impact we're having on our environment. Firstly, can you briefly explain what green chemistry is and what your centre does? Yeah, green chemistry is a, is a concept uh, designed to... Uh, develop technologies which allow chemistry to be practiced with minimal damage to the environment or in an environmentally compatible way and it's meant to cover both chemical processes and chemical products. The the centre at York was set up about uh, seven or eight years ago and the idea was to provide a hub of activities that covered fundamental research work, uh, industrial collaboration, but also educational development, so we work with schools and on public understanding projects as well, and also networking, so we network out to well over 1,000 people around the globe. In a nutshell, what would you say are the key goals uh, of your centre and how how do you aim to achieve those? Well, we are trying to, uh, I guess, achieve an awful lot really because we're trying to make the public more aware of what the relevant issues are in the context of green chemistry but we're also trying to engage all the different uh, actors in the supply chain or life cycle of a chemical product. So we're trying to think in terms of where do the raw materials come from now and where will they come from in the future, which means that we can talk to, one day we might be talking to an oil company, the next day we might be talking to farmers. And then we move from the raw materials to the actual chemical processing, which is where green chemistry really started in the last decade. And that's to say to chemical manufacturing industries, OK, uh, this is, uh, you're wanting to achieve a certain goal. Typically, you want to make a, tip, a type of product, but there's different ways of doing it. And you should think about doing it in the way that's most environmentally compatible, least environmentally harmful. And then ultimately, of course, and something which is capturing an awful lot of attention at the moment, is we want to make sure that the products are increasingly environmentally compatible themselves. So we want the products to be, for example, they may well be biodegradable. They certainly wouldn't want to present any serious damage to the the environment. Are there any well-known examples of applications that are already out there in real-world use? Yes, there are. Um, I think, for example, a famous example now which is coming comes through from the United States is something called PLA or polylactic acid. And this is a new product which is now quite well known in the US and is becoming now quite well known in Europe. It's a plastic material which has been made from uh, cornstarch that's actually been made from a totally renewable crop grown in Iowa State. They then do the processing in a way which actually applies the principles of green chemistry to minimise, as I said before, any environmental harm, and then generates a product which is both useful, which it has to be, of course, but also is totally biodegradable. So when it does reach end of life, when it does, as everything does, escapes to the environment, it doesn't cause cause any harm to the environment. And what sorts of things is this uh, material used for? Well, PLA is used as a general-purpose plastic, so it's used for packaging. So, for example... Um, The first example I saw of it in Europe was quite recently, a few months ago, when I was in Stockholm. And if you just buy a bottle of water in some of the stores in Stockholm now, the actual plastic bottle is made of PLA. But also, interestingly, it's also useful for fabrics. So, in fact, there's now a range of fabrics you can buy, certainly in the US, and I suspect very soon in Europe, which are made from PLA. Can you tell me a bit about your own current areas of research that you're working on right now? 
uh, our research has is, is, is shifted in recent years because, um, as I said earlier, the focus for a long time was very much on the chemical process. It was trying to work with the manufacturing industries to, but not so much thinking about what their raw materials were or even what their products were. It was much more about the way that they did the chemistry, so the conversion of the raw materials into the products. So it covered things like solvents and catalytic, better catalytic methods of achieving the, uh, the actual chemical conversions and minimising waste and so on. What we've done in recent years, and this is really only in the last two or three years, is we've been looking in both directions away from the process. So probably in terms of research, our biggest effort now is with regard to the utilisation of renewable feedstocks. So it means, rather like the example I gave you with PLA, it's now thinking about, well, oil's running out, it's getting very expensive, processes built on using oil tend to be rather polluting, the products that they generate are not often environmentally compatible. So there's a lot of reasons why you might want to consider alternative starting materials. So very much at the beginning of the whole life cycle. So when you start planning how you're going to make something that you want, be it a plastic bag, a pharmaceutical or whatever, think about where does it come from in the first instance? Where does the carbon come from? And we are now more and more looking at the carbon coming from, essentially coming from agricultural products and other sources of so-called biomass so the big ones really are trees and wheat straw and I'll, I'll give both of those examples in my talk later they both represent very large volumes of renewable carbon which we are growing for various reasons food recreation and so on and actually present a huge opportunity for us to better utilize that carbon for making chemical products which then become much genuinely sustainable and have a much better chance of being environmentally compatible. You mentioned oil particularly there, so is this a relevance to different types of fuels for motor vehicles, for example? Yes, it is, because what's happened, uh, and I, I wouldn't have been able to predict this myself a couple of years ago, is there's been an explosion of interest in fuels. And what we're now seeing, I think everybody now is aware in this country of biodiesel, and people are becoming increasingly aware of bioethanol. And these are often considered to be fuels of the future. Now, in fact, uh, biodiesel is a nice example. Biodiesel is, comes, from, uh, comes from crops, comes from nature. It's, it's an example of the biomass I was telling you about. It's actually made by a chemical process, which therefore also needs consideration from a green chemistry point of view in terms of trying to improve that process. And then, of course, it generates a product, which hopefully will be reasonably environmentally compatible. It's not perfect. It's still going to generate pollution as it's being used. But, you know, it's certainly heading in the right direction. And there's a lot of opportunities just in making biodiesel for green chemistry to be applied. But even more interesting than that is the fact that actually when you make fuels, you're actually making chemicals. And I think fuel companies are beginning perhaps to recognise this. So if you make biodiesel, biodiesel is an ester type of chemical, which actually has more uses than simply burning. So there's an interesting potential here for fuel companies to look at their products in a rather different way to just something that can be used for transport fuel and think of them actually as, 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 as feedstocks, as starting materials for making a whole range of chemical products. And even more interesting than that, if you like, is the fact that when they do make biodiesel, every time they make biodiesel, they also make byproducts. These are you know, products that you don't want as, the, as your major product and which at the moment it would be considered to be waste. And this, the green chemistry teaches us to never consider anything to be waste. It says, look, don't think of waste. Think about, think about the potential for using that. You know, be, try to be imaginative and look for applications. 
especially if it's carbon containing because every every source of carbon we've got we should be thinking about uh, about making use of so the the biofuels the change in biofuels with biodiesel bioethanol and so on is something which i think will will help accelerate and parallel the whole sort of sustainable chemistry approach which 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 i'm talking about today and which which is what we're really all about how quickly do you think we'll see a, a mainstream uptake of these kind of alternative fuels um, well, uh, it's been driven by incentives, and it's been driven by incentives including taxation and by policy. And this is forcing Europe, for example, to take up uh, a significant percentage of biofuels over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And if you look, the EU has a document called, uh, I think it's called Vision 2030, and it's looking to see how this can be achieved. You know, is it possible to find the the feedstocks I was telling you about to actually enable this volume of biofuels to be produced? And the answer seems to be very clearly yes. So I think, you know, the, the, the sort of the legal, not the legal side, the government pushes will actually enable this to be picked up at a certain rate. But what's unpredictable is how much the public demand and the industry response will accelerate that. Because in a sense, the government said, well, the minimum has to be this value x but actually with enough public pressure enough industry acceptance of this technology and recognition of the sort of things i was telling you about the sort of added value of doing this you may well find that the rate of uh, uptake of these is larger now personally i'm not convinced that biodiesel for example is the answer to all of our problems I think in the foreseeable future, there's going to be a mix of different sources of fuel. As petroleum starts to phase out, and that will take decades, it's not going to simply disappear overnight, then we'll see biodiesel picking up, bioethanol will start to come in in Europe in a much bigger way over the next five to ten years. And then who knows what's going to come next? All sorts of different possibilities of biofuels coming for transportation purposes. And of course, you know, this is ignoring any fundamental changes we might have in the whole transportation industry in terms of the means of transportation. So there's a lot of unknowns here, but certainly biofuels will grow substantially in terms of usage in the foreseeable future. And I've, I just, it's just possible that that growth may be even greater than the government uh, is actually forcing upon us. So fuels are obviously of a great relevance to um, the general public. Is there any other examples that you can think of which uh, are going to make a difference to people's everyday lives in the near future? I think it's, uh, if you analyse it, actually it could make a difference everywhere you look. Uh, for example, in the context of legislation, uh, the whole green chemistry movement, I said it was being pulled by things like biofuels initiatives, it's also being pulled now by legislation. And this year, in fact, marks is a landmark in, in chemical manufacturing in Europe, in chemistry in Europe, because of the advent of new legislation which has the acronym of REACH and this is the most powerful chemicals legislation which the world has ever seen and the entire world is very very sensitive to this and what this is going to do is it's going to challenge every chemical that we use now we need to then think in terms of so what does that mean to to ordinary people well it means everything to ordinary people because our entire lifestyle is now based on chemicals everything we wear everything we eat everything we sit on every time we climb into a car climb into an aircraft every time we take a, a drug to cure our headache every time we take a drink we are effectively consuming products or that have been either manufactured by or in some way influenced by the chemical industry so it's going to affect everything now just to give you some examples maybe some very common ones and ones that are attracting a lot of attention at the moment packaging 
and it's uh, it's difficult to pick up a newspaper these days without reading something about packaging. There's a big concern, it has been a big concern for a while now about packaging, and part of it, of course, is excess packaging. Perhaps we do have far too much packaging than we need. But accepting the fact that actually some packaging is indeed valuable does actually have a, an important role preserving the lifetime of, uh, of fragile products and enabling transportation and so on. Then, of course, there's a very interesting question then about what's the packaging made of? Because the real concern about packaging at the moment is it was not designed for end of life or not, as we'd say in green chemistry, it didn't have benign by design applied to it. It was designed to actually achieve the job, the job being to actually wrap around the product or whatever that was, and that was it. But in the future, we need to think in terms of making sure the design stage of that product includes the end of life, and also, as I said before, includes the raw materials used to make it. Now, if you do that so that packaging actually can degrade, is rapidly in the environment, is compatible or more compatible with the environment, then a lot of the concerns go... And we can, in fact, continue to use reasonable quantities of packaging for the purposes which, for which it's most useful. And so we will see and already are seeing, I mean, there's some stores already now in the UK sell or give away plastic bags which are made of so-called degradable products. And these, again, are products essentially of green chemistry, some of the early stage products of green chemistry. And even the, uh, even the tape recorder I'm speaking to at the moment and the electronic devices I'm surrounded with here actually, again, are entirely dependent on the products of the chemical industry, be they the plastic covers, the actual sort of electronic components, the flame retardants which are present inside those devices to make them much safer to use, things we don't necessarily think about but which are there for good reason in many cases. All of these products are now being looked at again in the context of what I've been saying. Now, what effect that's going to have on these products in the future is not clear. But certainly, from an environmental point of view, the plan is, the, the goal is to make sure that those products in the future are much more environmentally compatible while still giving us the sort of benefits that, that we want. I think packaging was a really good example because in the news recently there's been comments about landfill sites filling up, that kind of thing. Are there any particular targets that we're aiming to achieve by particular dates, for example, reducing our waste by a certain percentage that green chemistry is, is heavily involved in that you can think of? Um, I can't necessarily specify any numbers in terms of that. I mean, there are targets certainly to to reduce the amount of landfill. Um, a nice example, actually, at, at where I come from in York, there's, a, there's a local, one of the local sort of tips there called Your Waste, run by a company called Your Waste. And I take, uh, we run a master's course in green chemistry at York, and each year we take the students to that, to the, to the tip, we call it the tip trip, and they all go along there to actually see what it means to be when we're talking about end of life. And it's rather interesting because, uh, I mean, the big concern, of course, is that the, uh, the, the holes in the ground are filling up. And we are running out of space very rapidly. So there are some fundamental issues there about what we can afford to throw away in the future. But on the positive side, the tip there has product lines. They don't simply think about it as being waste. So going back to my earlier comment, they're now beginning to look for value. So they have several product lines. And they may be quite trivial products. They may, for example, be for composting. But they may also include things like taking some waste and pressing them for making use in, for example, covering playgrounds and so on. Interestingly... Probably one of the biggest problem lines goes back to what I just said before, and that's electronic goods. Because, again, the current generation, or the last generation, I should say, of electronic goods, TVs and so on, didn't have benign by design. In fact, not even the current ones really do either. And therefore, at end of life, we have this very complicated mix of different components, 
including a lot of chemicals, which needs to be disassembled. And if you go to these places now, they're disassembling by hand. And this is a very labour-intensive, time-consuming, wasteful, awful process. And sometimes, of course, even worse, it's shipped to other countries, to developing countries, where the regulations, the control as to what goes on is much less rigorous and the environmental and the health hazards are, are, are much more intense and much more of a concern. So, you know, we need to think cleverly. So we're now doing a project, for example, which is, which is anticipating the new generation of electronic goods, which, of course, for example, flat-screen TVs and so on, have very different chemical components, including things like liquid crystals. And we're now trying to develop technology which will be available for when people are throwing those away in a few years' time to make sure we can recover, especially the hazardous components, and not just recover them, but also recover them in a way that we can use them again in the next set of products. So, as I say, you know, going away from this concept of waste. We've talked about packaging, fuels, and also electronic goods, which are all key areas. But if you had to single out sort of one particular thing, what would you say is the most significant area in which green chemistry will help us to lessen our impact on the environment? Oh gosh, I don't know if there is a single area really. I mean it's um, because, you know, I could equally uh, talk about the, uh, you know, I mentioned the clothes that we're wearing, I could talk about the dyes for example, you know, I've got a colourful tie here deliberately for uh, lecturing purposes, which is actually meant to show that on one hand we have the uh, wonderful advantages of the chemical industry to give us all these wonderful colours but each of them also presents an environmental and a green chemistry challenge, not literally in the colour sense, but in all sorts of other colours as well. I, I don't know if there is a single challenge. I mean, I think, as I said earlier, the, we're beginning now to recognise how green chemistry can be useful in the context of energy. And energy, of course, is one of the hot topics at the moment. Everybody is concerned about energy, you know, reliability and continuity of supply and costs and so on. And this is something where I think, you know, green chemistry must have a very important role to play but it's it covers so many different areas of our lives i mean one area that we're now getting into which i wouldn't have necessarily expected quite recently is in the context of pharmaceuticals drugs which you know people on the whole don't think about as presenting environmental hazards because they're there to achieve such an important effect and yet the reality is that we consume so many drugs which by definition are very active molecules that we also throw an awful lot away and that means a lot of getting into the environment. And we are now detecting all sorts of pharmaceutical compounds in rivers and so on. And that's a problem which is coming up, if you like, on the horizon. So, again, we're trying to be trying to be clever enough to think ahead, rather like with the electronic goods I was telling you about, anticipate the problems. Well, anticipate the awareness of the problems and as well as the actual problems themselves and set up technologies which will be ready to deal with them. Because what we're suffering now is we're now suffering having to deal with a whole set of an industrial revolution that wasn't thinking very much about resource and it wasn't thinking very much about environmental impact. It was there to achieve the effects that we all wanted to pay for. It was market-led and it wasn't led by consumer concerns about environmental issues or about all the way back to raw materials. What we're seeing now is a, a, a significant difference in terms of the way the public are beginning to look at things. And this is witnessed by statements by recently by, by department stores and supermarkets, many of whom we are working with now, as they begin to recognise that actually everything they sell contains chemicals. And everything they sell, therefore, is a potential, is an opportunity, it's also a challenge, and it needs to be looked at very carefully, and it needs to be made sustainable and green. 
You mentioned that your centre is quite interdisciplinary, and I've also seen mentions of green computing as well. So should we, or indeed are we, looking at sort of green versions of the other physical sciences in addition, like green physics, green biology? Well, yes, in the sense that I think, as I say, we have to uh, we have to we have to become more environmentally compatible. I think we distance ourselves in many ways from actually from the planet, which is which we can't really do. I mean, I've got no real concerns about the survival of the planet. I, I would have concerns about the survival of us, because I think the planet will actually cope with uh, whatever we present. But um, you know, we we may not survive the process. So I think we have to learn to be what we are. We tend to talk about us and the environment. I mean, it's all the environment. We are, we are the environment. All, I, mean, I think it was Einstein who made the lovely definition, the, the environment is everything except yourself. And this, I think, we need to recognise and we need to think in terms of compatibility with the environment all the way through the life cycle. I mean, the one message when I'm talking in schools, for example, and giving general public talks, the one thing I like to try and leave everybody with is an appreciation as to what a life cycle means. You know, really thinking in terms of when you're using something, when you're eating your sandwich or, or trying out your new jacket or whatever it is, think of thinking a little bit about where did that come from and where's it going to go? And try to take accept some responsibility for that because, you know, ultimately we are, the, we are all consumers and we really do have to, I think, accept that. So will it impact other areas? Absolutely. Green engineering is a big issue. Uh, green architecture again i've been i've been talking to architects recently some fascinating possibilities about how we think about the design of buildings from now on to make them more environmentally compatible and that doesn't just mean things like wind turbines on the roof and bigger windows it means what do you construct the walls of what sort of materials have you used where they come from and where will they go when the building eventually reaches the end of its useful life green biology of course in terms of the the need for biology to help us understand the resources and make best use of those resources for future renewable sources of carbon, as I talked before. And then, if obviously, environmental sciences are relevant there. But also, you know, as, as I mentioned before, we do work with people like economists, with people working on social policy. I mean, all these non-scientific areas have a very important role to play because you can't achieve this without making it economically viable. People talk, It's a rather hackneyed phrase, but it's still very important, the so-called triple bottom line where people say we're talking about environmental compatibility here but you cannot you cannot do something unless it makes economic sense as well because no company in their right mind of course will take on something that doesn't actually enable them to survive economically so it has to be economically viable it has to be socially acceptable and ultimately of course it's going to be the acceptability but more than acceptable it's going to be the pressures from from society to really pull this through to demand to know you know where did this come from and what am i what's going to happen to it afterwards this awareness, this really getting engaged in the whole sort of the whole process through the through the product life cycle, is something I look forward to in the future. So absolutely green everywhere. Yes. So do you think that the um, market, commercial, and also sort of socially acceptable, and I suppose almost the um, popularity factor of green sciences is a big challenge that we're facing as well. Yeah, popularity is um, it's getting better. Uh, you know, when I I mean I've been doing green chemistry for longer than it was called green chemistry, but I mean certainly ten years ago, I it was very difficult to even get past the door of many companies because they um, they associated green with uh, either with well, typically with extremists, and um, in those days, organisations like Greenpeace were known for their you know very extreme reactions to incidents and so on. I think in recent years, it's become easier. People are now they recognise there's something there, 
they are you know the message is beginning to get through at least in a sort of superficial sense people now see oh yeah okay maybe green does make some sense and sustainable yes that makes sense we have to be sustainable and even the NGOs now, the Greenpeaces and so on, and the WWFs, Friends of the Earth, all those organisations now are becoming more mainstream. You can work, We have members of all those organisations advising us, and we work with them to help them as well. To Because they now understand... It really is a partnership. We need to get everyone working together to actually, to actually make this possible. How are you getting the message of green chemistry across to the, the general public in terms of educating them? I think it's very important. It's rather like saying that we need to, we need to see an effect all the way across the uh, the life cycle of a chemical product. We also need to think in terms of all the way through the life cycle of us, if you like, because we need to make uh, children aware at a very early stages to what sustainability means. And I found, and a number of my colleagues have found as well, that actually it's a, it's a relatively easy message to get across to young children, because they are naturally interested in environmental issues. And they're also, in many cases, of course, naturally leaning towards science. So I actually find it a very good marketing tool, if you like, for for actually uh, persuading uh, young children that the chemistry, the chemical sciences and engineering and so on are subjects worth doing and that you can actually get out there and make a difference through your applications of, of green chemistry and, and engineering and so on. It's also very important that we uh, we don't simply wait for the new generation of youngsters to work their way through. We can't afford to wait for that. We need to actually get the message across at a very broad level. And that means that we have to, in chemistry, in the chemical sciences and engineering and all the relevant areas, we have to learn how better how to get the message across to non-technical people. This is a big challenge for it. It's always been a problem for science, but I would argue that from a communication point of view, it's even more important now than it has been before. As I said before, in terms of all these illustrations of where chemicals play such an important role to ordinary people, to consumers and so on, we have to find a way to help them to understand that. So we have to, in a sense, maybe, you know, just be a little bit relaxed on some of our some of our harsher principles with regard to how we do actually talk about our subject for the sake of getting everybody in terms of society working with us to achieve the kind of partnership i think is so essential professor clark thank you very much thank you